got here just in the nick of time. What does that make us? Big damn heroes, sir. Ain't we just? My name is Simone McIntyre, I'm the producer of The Overcoat at the Paris International Film Festival and you're listening to Shoot the Breeze. Hi, my name is Dennis Dobrovoda. I'm a director of a short film called Savage, which is being shown at the International Film Festival in Paris and I'm on Shoot the Breeze at the Resonance FM. This is Ashley Maria, the director of Pioneers in Skirts. We are screening at the Paris International Film Festival, and you're listening to Shoot the Breeze. Woo! Hi, I'm Ali Cook. I am the writer and producer, and one of the actors of uh, the short film The Cunning Man, which is playing at the Paris International Film Festival. And you can catch me being interviewed about the project and other stuff on Resonus 104.4 FM on Shoot the Breeze. Hi, my name is Anthony Mindel. I'm the writer and director, and I act in the Paris International Film Festival's entry, Some of Us, and you are listening to Shoot the Breeze. I'm Nora Dakos, uh, with the film titled Cream, and it's going to be screened at the Paris International Film Festival, and you are listening, Shoot the Breeze. Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM, film and TV radio show where a handful of film enthusiasts shoot the breeze about all things film and television. I'm Marcus E. Ako and this is a special episode of Shoot the Breeze <clears throat> where we uh, spin off from the, uh, the episode that aired on Resonance FM where we have some more filmmakers whose films on TV shows and uh, short films are currently showing at the at Paris International Film Festival, which is going to be ending on the 14th of February, which is Sunday. So get to watching. Yep, get on with it, because uh, we, we've got loads of different um, interviews that we're going to put into this show. It is a very special episode because it's podcast only. It probably won't be on uh, Resonance anytime soon. We might do, but you never know. Um, and we're going to be starting this one uh, with... We're going to start this episode with Surviving the Silence, which unfortunately, um, the, the title wasn't mentioned during the entire course of the interview. I was the one who did the interview, so my bad. Don't apologize, because at the end of the day, you start the interview by getting the guests to introduce themselves and the name of the film that they're talking about. It's a trick I do, 
where basically, and this is, I'm just saying, I'm going to say it right now. It's a trick I do if I don't, if when I don't do my research and I don't know what film the, the, the filmmaker is, uh, is going to present. Literally, I get them to say what it is. And then I just ask them questions like the idiot that I am. And I just say something like, so tell me your name and the name of the film that you're here to talk about. Oh, it's called Project X. Tell me what Project X is about which is basically what an interviewee is supposed to do. So you did exactly what you were supposed to do. It just, they didn't help you out by telling you the name of the film. No worries. So let's start. So, so just so we can get it right this time, as we're starting spotlight session for this uh, podcast episode, what is the name of the film? Surviving the Silence. So let's jump into Spotlight. Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm producer Dave and uh, but we've got some guests who are going to be talking about their film that's going to be shown at the Paris International Film Festival. Love to ask you all about the film so please introduce yourselves. Bonjour producer Dave and thank, thank you, you to the Paris International Film Festival for inviting us and for screening our film. It's a love story that reveals unknown history. It's the true story of two women in love who helped change military history and repeal the US military's anti-gay and lesbian policy, which was known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And that was 10 years ago that it was repealed and yet the effects of it still go on. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Um, Pat Thompson, happy to be here. Barbara Brass, and uh, the film tells the whole story. So you can ask us any question you like. Okay, well in that case, the first question I'm going to ask you basically is to tell us what this film is all about from your own perspective. Well, from my perspective, the film is about the love story between Colonel Pat and her wife, Barbara Brass. And it shows how two people can make choices that are very challenging and difficult. One is a choice definitely from love where Barbara Brass chose to live in the closet because she wanted to help protect her partner and now wife's career in the military and also to protect themselves from folks in the neighborhood or people in society in general who sometimes would ask questions that they really shouldn't be asking and threaten them. And then we also see the choice that Colonel Pat made to put her own career at risk in order to make a ruling in a certain way on the expulsion of Colonel Greta Kammermeyer, who was being expelled for having come out in the military as a lesbian. And the way that Colonel Pat Thompson handled this actually uh, resulted in Colonel Kammermeyer being reinstated when she was in civil court. So it's a story of love. It's a story of courage. It's a story of finding a way to do the right thing when there is no way. Okay, Colonel Pat and Barbara, um, obviously this is telling your story. So um, how much input did you have in the film? Oh, we had uh, loads of input. Uh, Cindy was wonderful to direct us in, in the direction she wanted, but also to give us the space and the time to express ourselves as who we are and how we feel, how we felt and all of, all of that. So uh, it was a wonderful experience to work with her and the team. Don't Ask, Don't Tell is a, 
significant point in US military history. Up until that point, basically you couldn't, you couldn't ask and you couldn't, well, you couldn't tell basically because you would be expelled as soon as you were found out. Is that not the case? That's the case. However, before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, there was a very explicit policy that was um, in 1942 that was put in place and it was simply stating homosexuality is incompatible with military service. So anyone who was found out to be homosexual, so gay or lesbian, would be automatically uh, dishonorably discharged. And then when President Bill Clinton came in, he crafted this what turned out to be a very awful compromise, saying nobody could ask, your superiors couldn't ask you if you were gay or lesbian, and you shouldn't go around telling anybody that you were gay or lesbian. So they weren't supposed to ask, service members were supposed to live a lie. And then there's the other part called don't pursue, which meant don't go after anybody to try to find out if they're gay or lesbian. And none of that happened and more people were actually discharged under don't ask, don't tell than under the previous uh, policy. So it turned out to just be a horrible thing in asking people to lie about who they were at such a great cost to themselves personally and putting their own military career at risk. Knowing all that, what inspired you to make the film now? Hearing their love story. When I first met um, Barb and Pat, it was in late 2013, and I had just screened my first film, Breaking Through, about openly LGBT elected officials who ran for office and were open and living the life of their dreams. And I, so I met these two wonderful women who came up to me after the screening. And the next day I saw them at a reception. They started telling me about how they'd been together for almost 30 years. And I thought, wow, how does anybody stay together for 30 years, right? I mean, that's an accomplishment in itself. And then on top of it, when you have to pretend for a lot of that time publicly that you're not a couple, that you're not together. And the toll that that takes on any relationship and being the hopeful romantic that I am, I thought, I want to know more about this. And so that fascinated me. And then when I learned the story behind Colonel Greta Kammermeyer's story, who had been a hero of mine, there'd been a movie made about her called Serving in Silence, that Glenn Close played her, Barbara Streisand executive produced the film. I thought, wow, this is history we need to know about. And there's something about history, the story behind the story, that often reveals more than we ever thought possible. And what it revealed in this case was Colonel Thompson's commitment to doing the best she could do in an absolutely horrible situation and putting herself at risk. And in a way that though Kamamara would be dismissed from the military, she would be reinstated during a civil trial. And how could I not tell that story, right? I mean, there's such an appetite, I think right now for knowing, going deeper, learning about unknown figures in history, such as Colonel Pat Thompson, who played such an important role in overturning this horrible don't ask, don't tell. And yet no one ever knew of her until she shared her story the first time. And I happened to be there. Barbara and Colonel Pat, I, I mean, the story that is coming across is one of a lot of love, but love that's been hidden for a long period of time, just so you could survive in a institution that didn't respect that love, um, particularly between two women as well, and two women who were having a hard enough time in an institution which was very male dominated. Just give us an, an, an inkling of what it was like serving at that time. 
in the U.S. military? I knew going into the military that um, that I would not be allowed to be open as to who I was, but I was determined to serve in the military in order to honor my brother, who was a Navy pilot and was killed during World War II. Um, and so that was really important to me. Uh, so that's why I joined the military. And I, even though I couldn't be out, um, I served. And I always said that it doesn't, doesn't matter uh, who you love, as long as you do the job that you're supposed to do and do it well. And I did that. Is that what you, is that what you also feel, Barbara? Oh, do I feel the same way? Yeah. Uh, I, I was not in the military, but, uh, and I knew I couldn't be because, not because of being um, a lesbian, but because I couldn't, uh, did not want to be told what to do. So would not follow our orders very well. So that would have been uh, <laughs> uh, sounds me, just uh, like me. <laughs> but uh, as far as telling our story, um, we thought at the at the time there, the opportunity arose, we were asked to contact Colonel Greta Kammermeyer because we were friends with her, and she was not available to come to college to speak. And my thought was that whether she could come or not, it would, should be the two of us and it should be the spouse's um, reactions and life and how the spouse had to survive through being closeted with a high-ranking military officer. So the, the original title of our speech that day was Invisible No More. And we came out boldly and proudly that night. And fortunately, Cindy was there to, to hear the whole story and to bring it on to the big screen so we don't have to now go around as we were um, visiting colleges and churches and civic groups and sharing the story we can send the film and hopefully the film will have uh, it already has worldwide film festival distribution we can hardly wait to see where it goes after that excellent I'm, I'm, I'm so I, I would love to dearly love to see the film because many of the times that you hear about the you hear these stories about lesbian and gay men um, in the military, it usually focuses on the men. And in this particular instance, what you're saying, what, what, what we're finding, what I've just discovered is that it's not the male that actually led to the change in policy. It's actually the females who stood up and actually had the courage to demand a change in policy. Cindy, I, I, have you highlighted that in the film? I'm hoping that you have. Well, the film, it I don't specifically call out that it's, you know, women perhaps who played more of an initial role than men, because the story is very much a personal story. It focuses on the bravery and heroism of Colonel Pat, of her wife, Barbara, behind the scenes, and also of Colonel Greta Kammelmeyer. And so that's the focus. And so we can pick some of that up along the way, but, um, you know, it definitely was. And, you know, one of the... Uh, attorneys who helped make that happen uh, was the female, Mary Newcomb, and she's also in our story and shares her experience of being Colonel Kammermeyer's attorney and her experience of Colonel Thompson. Because you'll notice when you see the film that neither Colonel Kammermeyer nor Mary Newcomb knew that Pat Thompson was a lesbian. 
they just knew that she was someone that they respected and treated this with a certain amount of of grace and dignity and allowed them to tell their full story, which had never happened to that degree before. So I think it's important to, to notice that in a lot of these situations, you know, from a political perspective as well in the US, um, there tend to be more female candidates and female elected officials in the US who are lesbian or bisexual than gay men or bisexual men. Now, some of that is starting to change, but in many ways, yes, women have been at the forefront of these battles, at least you know, um, visibly speaking, if you will, um, with the support of men behind the scenes because society tends to not view women as sexual beings. And so therefore they don't think of lesbians as so much, you know, women who have sex with women, they're just women and they're women trying to break through um, the traditional glass ceilings Whereas, you know, when they look at gay men, well, of course, you know, it's all about sex. <laughs> so it's such a, so a horrible stereotype about women's sexuality has actually, to a strange degree, benefited lesbians who have broken through some of these glass ceilings. Excellent. I would love to talk to you more on this, but, I, but we need to move on. How did you get the, your film into the Paris Film Festival? What is uh, your thoughts about the Paris International Film Festival? Well, I'm absolutely thrilled because I grew up in France. And so when I saw that there was going to be a festival there, I absolutely, I applied right away and I've been in communication with the director, Jenna, you know, throughout and we, you know, send voicemails and emails in a combination of of uh, Franglais, which is a combination of French and English. And, you know, so it's just wonderful. And so I'm just so sad that I can't be there in person, but I look forward to, you know, more films and going to festivals in, in Paris with her and that particular one, even if I don't have a film in it. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on Shoot the Breeze. Um, thank you very, very much for joining us. Colonel Pat and Barbara, Cindy Abel, thank you very much. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and we have another filmmaker whose film has been included in the Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your name and the name of the film. My name's Ali Cook, and my film is The Cunning Man. Ali, thank you very much for joining us. As I mentioned just off air, you're the first English filmmaker uh, that, that we are interviewing as part of the Paris International Film Festival. So don't tell anybody, but we're rooting for you. Uh, can you tell <laughs> us, what is your film, The Cunning Man, about? Um, well, um, it's been summarized in different ways. The best one is my friend Dave Gorman, who's a, a comedian, and he said the cunning man is really about three cunning men, but one of them is far more cunning than the other two. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's good. Uh, Dave Gorman, that, it, that would be the uh, Dave Gorman who has pretty much uh, has flood, he flooded the, the airwaves over the 90s with the Gorman show, right? Where it's, That's right. Uh, Are you Dave Gorman? Yes. That's yes. it, yeah. Yes. Well, we, used uh, to be, we used to be next, next door neighbours, basically, and we used to have lunch together every day. And then he recently saw the film and he came up with that description. So I thought that was the perfect description. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's, it's a very punchy description. If I were to ask, is it a comedy? 
No, no. So the, the genre is really, uh, it's been one of these ones where it, it's fit into lots of festivals. We've been in drama festivals, we've been in horror festivals, but I think really it's magic reality. So on, on the surface, uh, it appears as though there's this down and out farmer who lives in the middle of rural Wales and he's collecting dead animals and we do not know why. And then the local abattoir collector, he doesn't like this because he gets paid for collecting dead animals and then taking them to what they call the knacker's yard and burning them and selling on the furs, of which that's actually quite a, a grim job, but a very lucrative job. And he doesn't like the fact that this old farmer seems to be taking his business. So he tries to find a way to take all of the carcasses off him. And then we find out something very mysterious has happened. Uh, yeah, you, you don't want to go any further. You're like, no, no, no. If you want to find out, well, if you want, to I, I mean, I, I I can go a little bit further. I mean, uh, the it's it's drenched in uh, Welsh folklore. Um, what uh, this is um, a, a cunning man is actually an old description for a real job title in Britain. Um, a cunning man was really sort of pre-NHS, very much pre-NHS, but we're talking middle ages upwards, and particularly in rural areas, they were kind of the local GP and the local vet rolled into one. And they would well, use, of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they would use uh, traditional medicine and folklore magic to try and cure people and animals. So we, we find out that one of the characters is indeed a cunning man. Understood. Um, I, I see. Yeah. I see how I see where that's going. And that one of the reasons why I didn't want to go any further is because we have been accused by one person in particular that every time we do our shows, we always tend to give away spoilers of films. And so because of that, I'm trying to impose a strict no spoiler policy on yeah. uh, on on our shows. But your 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 film, the fact that it's it's gotten uh, huge praise from a comedian that I actually I I really like. I respect uh, Dave Gorman. Uh, he's given his uh, his stamp of approval uh, on that film. So I don't want to spoil the film. But I want to ask, what inspired you to make The Cunning Man? Well, um, Zoe, um, our director, she's a, a very old friend of mine. And uh, she's been uh, directing children's TV and then she moved into documentaries. And she really wanted to make, make a move into scripted. And I've been an actor and a writer for a long time. And uh, also I, I, I'm a magician. And I've been, before I started uh, acting, I was a professional magician. And my hobby is the history of magic. So she said, I want to film something on my brother's farm. So we had our location. And she says, I've had an idea. There's an old farmer carrying a dead dog down the road and I want to know why. And then I, then I went away with that start and I came up with the answer. So that was the inspiration. Uh, so you, because you were the writer, you're the writer of the film. Um, uh, Sam, uh, Zoe Dobson is the director. Uh, but, Simon yeah. Armstrong, you're, you're, you're in the movie as well. Yes, I play the abattoir collector or what's known as the knacker man. Yes, the knacker man. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so how long did it take you to, to make this short? We were sponsored by Ari Alexa uh, as part of a uh, sort of, they do with these competitions each year. So we only had two days. So we shot it in two days. Now, when you imagine you're filming farmyard animals 
and you want these animals to walk in in exactly the right place over the right thing uh it was a miracle that we actually got we got all the shots of the animals i think in about 40 minutes um but it, uh, but we only had two days to shoot it i took part a long time ago in the 48 hour film festival that obviously involves uh shooting uh, you know rehearsing writing shooting editing the movie in 48 hours but you just shot the movie in 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 48 hours is that correct in, in within 48 hours so yeah and we had a few weeks to edit it um okay. we did we did have a good budget for a short uh, so we had a crew of 30 so it was a full out um full-on film crew um, and, and we, sponsored by ari alexa so did they provide the uh the cameras as well yeah so so ari sponsored the the cameras which was their latest camera uh, i think it's called the the lf and because of that then that's why you can't really cheat it because the minute you've got a camera of that quality well you have to light it properly so that immediately means you've got to get proper gaffers in You've yeah. got to get proper sparks in. It just immediately raises the bar. So we were sort of forced to raise the bar, basically. But it, it turned out for the uh, for the better. And and also because we only had two days, we really nailed the shot list. And I and I think I think there's this sort of crazy thing that people have learned from reading about Steven Spielberg. You know, everyone's always read Steven Spielberg doesn't need a shot list. He just turns up and he shoots it. And it's like, well, yeah, if I've been directing for 30 years, I could probably do that. But everyone reads that and forgets that he's been doing it for 30 years. So <laughs> we there's were also, very, very anal with the shot list, very much there's so. also There's also the fact that people don't tend to understand that the, before he will, before people like Spielberg and other directors of that sort would do that, they only do that when they are absolutely confident with what it is they they are come to set to do. So essentially, yeah. they're, they're walking on set. They've already prepared the film. They've seen the film in their head. So they know how the shot needs to take place. And as you said, Steven Spielberg has decades of experience. So he yes. knows that he places the camera there. He doesn't even have to look at it. He just knows which angle it's going to be. So he knows that's perfect. So he can come in without a shot list and say, I'm doing this first. Then we're doing that. Then we're doing that. And who are you to argue with Spielberg, right? So, yeah. Yeah, of course. But I get your, I get your point. Um, how long yeah. have you been working? Have you worked with uh, Zoe uh, on other projects before? Is this your first project with Zoe? Uh, it is my first project with Zoe. I mean, she used to live with my partner years ago and they used to work on TV series together. I presented a TV pilot for her. I mean, when I was like 22 and I did that because she couldn't get... That was like that was like two years ago. So, OK. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Course, yeah. yeah. According to the spotlight. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> And IMDb, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so I've known her a long time, but we've never really had a chance to work together. But it was, she just said, look, I'd love to do something about magic. You know everything about magic. And uh, I've, I want to shoot this on my brother's farm. And uh, let's go for it. The One of the huge benefits when you do get a sponsor like that is it takes away too much of the the guesswork you know, it's like, we have to shoot it then. The cameras are coming on that day. We've only got three weeks to edit it. And that's it. This is it. And, and I think there's something great um, about having restrictions. Uh, I think the danger with a lot of short films is we're, we're striving for too much perfection. 
and you get uh, into analysis paralysis. You know, do we sh do we shoot this way? Do we edit it that way? And really, you're just going to make a bold choice. You know, there are a couple of things we would do a little bit differently if we had more time, but you just go for it, and that's it. Yeah, and I I, I think I may be I may be butchering this particular interview that I read, or uh, it, or mixing it with this filmmaker and another filmmaker but robert rodriguez uh, back in the day it, robert, everyone knows him from desperado from the spy kids movies etc uh, one of the things that his ethos when he was making films was uh, the reason why he does practically everything himself is because he in order to get his films made he'll go to a producer producer producers will say here is your budget he will give you let's say a figure of one million dollars just put that as a round figure what he would do is he would say actually i'll tell you what and he'll go and budget the film in the way he'll do it to add restrictions to himself to be able to get the movie done uh, costing 700,000 including those restrictions that will force him to find a different way to be able to get something done which allows him to bring the film under budget which make means producers are like yep sure he made us you know we, he saved us 300,000 let's give him another project and it's that it's the fact that putting yourself in with those kind of restraints basically allows you to think outside the box and plan and not have the luxury of saying, oh, but I want to have this massive, you know, effect happen and this explosion and so on. Yes. Which I guess if you had the budget, you'd be like, yeah, we can do that. We can put in post-effect of the sheep rising from the dead and attacking the cunning man and, and the, and the knackers. Yes. And so, on. <laughs> so, but that would be a different movie. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And, and, and also you learn that as you go along because, um, we have one CGI shot in this film and uh, I've never used CGI before. And we have one other special effect, which is actually a magic trick that I knew, um, which we put in. And the CGI, the original quote for CGI, because I went, this is what I'm not going to reveal what it is, because that, that's like part of the magic of the film. But I said, can we do this? I want to do this. And they went, yep, 18,000 pounds. And I went, oh. <laughs> and then I went away and I reworked the shot and I reworked the shot. And we ended up getting a shot that told the story for 750 pounds. And, and it's just as good. And, I, and that really is the secret. It really is about knowing what to show and knowing what you don't need to show. Absolutely right. Um, so you, you, your film, uh, The Cunning Man, is currently at the uh, Paris International Film Festival. Tell us, yeah. uh, what are your thoughts about the Paris International Film Festival? Well, um, we're just very honoured to be in it. Um, you know, we've had such uh, a great response generally from The Cunning Man. And it's actually quite nice to be in one a little bit closer to home because we keep getting these sort of random emails from India and uh, uh, Texas. So it's quite nice to be in a European film festival. We're really excited about it. I love the juxtaposition of India and Texas. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. We, w we won three awards in Texas. I never knew that stories about Welsh folklore would be so popular in the deep south. <laughs> you never know what resonates with people. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, no idea. <laughs> so, so the Cunning Man, as, a, as we said, is currently at the Paris International Film Festival. Uh, can you please let us know how can listeners uh, get to find out more about yourself, the film, uh, and, uh, and all the other people who worked on the project? Yeah, so um, the, uh, the project is called The Cunning Man. Um, I'm the writer, producer, and one of the actors, Ali Cook. 
and Zoe Dobson is the director. And uh, you can follow us both on Instagram. I'm Ali underscore cook and she is at Zoe Dobson. And uh, we post there about obviously The Cunning Man and then other projects we're up to as well. Fantastic. Ali, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about uh, your film, The Cunning Man. Uh, we wish you all the best. And we know we're behind you 100% uh, to win at the Paris International Film Festival. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and we've got another filmmaker who has their film in the Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your name and the name of your film. I'm Ashley Maria, and I'm the director of Pioneers in Skirts. Ashley, thank you very much for joining us. I want to ask you, what is your film Pioneers in Skirts all about? It is a feature documentary that follows my own journey to understand uh, what women are confronted with in their careers and then to actually offer solutions that we all can really start to implement now. And how do we actually change the tide for the next generation? Uh, so uh, with regards, if I understand correctly, are you focusing mainly in film or are you talking in other industries as well? We're talking across all industries because the issues are pervasive across all industries. <laughs> No one's perfect. Yeah, I guess. Um, uh, some of the, a lot of the uh, guests that we've had on, a lot of the times films come onto our show and we talk a lot about uh, both diversity and representation in various aspects. In the last few shows of the last few episodes we've done has actually moved not just from uh, racial representation to uh, gender representation, but now it seems more about health and and an illness. But let's mm -hmm. move back into gender representation in, and let's talk. Let's have a look at film first, and then we can move out into the wider area. In your uh, from your own perspective, what are the major issues facing uh, the film industry, film and television industry, when it comes to gender representation? Well. It's, it's mainly that um, they look at the pipeline and they, they feel that uh, not enough women are eligible, good enough, um, interested in running the show, basically. So um, there's this kind of preconceived notion of what a director looks like, what a producer looks like, what a writer looks like. Basically, all of you are above the line. There's all these um, decision makers that have decided what a successful project will look like and who will run it. And so really what's happening in the film industry is we're working to change that. And it's being done through actually mandatory processes. So a lot of these fellowships, these uh, shadowing projects, um, grants, all of this is out there to try to push women, minority filmmakers uh, ahead. Uh, but until we change the actual decision makers who are financing these films, financing the movies that you see on TV, because to be frank, we are completely uh, convinced of certain stereotypes. We are trained about what, what roles are, are for gender, which gender, based on the media that we watch. So until we can get these decision makers to realize that uh, we need to have a more diverse really representation of what's going on um, every day. I mean, women aren't just this particular role. Women, you know, men are not just this particular role. So um, what's happening is, is we're just trying to put the word out there, um, make people more aware of it, 
Um, but I also say, you know, we're making some of these fellowships mandatory, but that can't be the only way that a woman like me gets in the door. Like you can't go, oh, which fellowships did you do? None? Okay, because 5,000 women applied for three roles. Let's be real. So there's, um, there's just a lot of uh, back and forth on what the best process is. And the truth is you just have to get these people who are actually funding the projects, hiring the, the, the filmmakers to realize you have to look outside the box and maybe as somebody who doesn't look like you. Now that makes perfect sense. And you're right with regards to the argument about uh, um, where certain a selection of people aren't really, they don't feel represented in a particular industry and the feedback they get from that, from that, um, from that complaint about underrepresentation is, well, there aren't enough experienced people. Well, it is, it's not a simple snapshot in time and that explains everything. It's, it, there's an entire process that comes before it in order for people of that particular selection to get experience, it needs to have started from way back where they would have been given those opportunities to have that experience to then carry on. So you saying, well, I'm not giving people within that group experience, uh, um, work because they don't have the experience. Well, that's just you perpetuating the old standards in order to get it work, uh, to get it fixed. You need to start giving those people that experience so that when it comes 10, 15 years down the line, that excuse of, well, there are no experienced people in that group, that excuse no longer exists. So I completely exactly. understand where you're coming from. Let's and focus that's what we, well, I was going to say, that's exactly what we talk about in the film. So Marcus, you need to start championing that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got it. There you go. I've, I've got my pen. It's all right. Um, so let's, let's focus on Pioneers in Skirt. So tell us, how did your movie come about? It started actually with a conversation with my mom, who's the producer of the film now. Um, she wasn't a filmmaker when we started out. Now she's a filmmaker, but um, it started out with a conversation with her where I just kept saying how um, I would like walk on set and people would assume everything about me besides me being the director. Like um, I would come in not as the person in charge. I would have to constantly prove myself. And like, we're not even talking about the harassment that I experienced, you know what I mean? Um, it's just, I was constantly um, not being taken seriously, being judged, not given opportunities in comparison to my male counterparts. But a lot of the narrative is that just means you have to work harder. That just means you have to network more. That just means you have to learn more and do more things. And um, as I sat down and I was talking to my mom, granted, this isn't the first time we had the conversation, but this is the one where she finally got frustrated and said, Ashley, it really sounds like you're dealing with a lot of the same stuff I dealt with. It just may not be as obvious. So we kind of looked into it and said, wow, you know, the world has not changed nearly as fast as I was led to believe growing up, believing that I can be anything I wanted to be, right? If you dream it, you can be it, which is great until you reach the workforce who doesn't see you in that role and will never see you in that role until we actually bring awareness to it and change it. So... We didn't know the solutions. We knew there was a problem. We did the research and Pioneers and Skirts really just started with me and my camera. Mom would come and run sound if I couldn't do it. You know, It was just me and her running out there, um, interviewing people, meeting different um, characters. Like we followed some characters on a robotics team, some young girls, because we, you know, like you said, it's like 
you have to look at the pipeline and the only industry that's really looking at the pipeline um, as far as our research was concerned was the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's really what got us out of the film industry. We said, we got to find solutions. Where are people doing it right? And so we found these young girls on a middle school's all girls team, because that is an age where uh, you have to start nipping it in the bud right away. That's where uh, bias is starting to ingrain themselves. I mean, so much of the narrative as well is women need to fix themselves. They just need to believe in themselves. They need to work harder. And luckily for me, I had this film, this journey to realize, you know, what you're really saying is women need to fix themselves when you say things like that. And so with our research, we went and we discovered Actually, there's so much going on in our culture that's chipping away at a woman every single day. Sometimes she doesn't even realize it, you know, and she wakes up 10 years into her career and goes, what the heck just happened? And uh, you burn out. And so, yeah, I mean, Pioneers and Skirts started out as my story and then it just got so much bigger. And then uh, we followed even more characters, including a, another young woman who found out she was pregnant but also up for a raise and was afraid to tell her boss that she was pregnant yeah that's so that, quite common yes yeah so that's where I went oh crap <laughs> no I didn't even consider that right because I was so focused on my own career um, and I think I think making pioneers and skirts it really allowed me to understand what a lot of women are going through across the spectrum but then um, it opens you up to the other biases that are out there um, the, you know, the racial bias, the disability bias, religious, I mean, there's so much out there that um, once you're aware to one thing, then you're aware to all of it. And so it was quite difficult to become a 60 minute documentary, but uh, we worked very hard over many years to make it this way. And we think it's actually, it's successful in getting people to really gain empathy into what the person next to them is going through. That's fa it's fantastic feat that you're putting out there because again, it's it's one of those things where, uh, with my analysis earlier, you can literally apply that to every group that feels underrepresented, uh, and the fact that you're stepping out to to present this is fantastic. I want to ask about pioneers and skirts. As you've mentioned, it's, you weren't just focusing on the film industry, you looked across other industries. Can you give us a couple of examples of pioneers in skirts in other industries who've actually, who maybe make a, a, an appearance in your film, or if they didn't make an appearance, you would have wanted them to make an appearance and mm -hmm. you'd like to give them a shout out. So the, the important thing is, is the people we interviewed were people who were trying to find solutions. So we say a pioneer, is anyone who is taking charge of their career, combating the biases that they're experiencing, overcoming them, maybe working with others, maybe helping others. It's really, everyone's a pioneer. And we, we went on this journey. I mean, we met Girl Scouts and they, they showed me a thing or two once you watch the first uh, opening scene of the movie and then you go, okay, they're a pioneer. <laughs> they're pretty cool. Um, some notable people, uh, Lucy Sanders, who is the uh, founder of NCWIT, National Center for Women and in Information Technology. She's the one that really helped me to see that when you tell a woman um, if she just believes in herself more, if she's just more confident, she's like, that's like saying you need to fix yourself. And it's not 
up to the minority in the situation to change the situation. She's like, it's up to the system to change. So they have to want to change. And so she was telling us how to actually do it. I mean, um, she even trained and, and, and uh, educated Brad Feld, who's a venture capitalist. Men can be pioneers. And, and she, she showed him that when he's in a meeting and, and he hears uh, a woman talking, yet all the men are overpowering her, he needs to use his clout, his, his status, to go and say, listen, so-and-so was saying something. I want to go back to what she was saying. Even that just simple act makes him a pioneer in actually changing the tide of that room just that environment. Um, uh, we talked to Sarah Bird, who's the CEO of Moz, a company in Seattle, and, and she became a mom. And that's when she realized there needed to be a better system in her company. So she changed it for working families. Again, women are not the only ones who have children. They definitely deal with a lot more than the male counterpart, but you know, men have kids too. So um, I honestly, Every single person in the film, we have it on our website who's in there, um, including Joan Darling, who was my mentor growing up. She was one of the first female directors to ever get paid to direct. And guess what? Her mentor was Norman Lear. And so we got him in the film too. The three of us sat down and talked about uh, really what was going on, what made him see that something needed to shift because he's always been known for being very conscious of um, the bias that's out there, our culture, what's wrong with our culture and probably making fun of it. Um, and so it was fun to talk to him and him even realizing that we haven't gone very far <laughs> in his 90 years at the time. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'd say anyone who's really actively trying to change something and, and help others is a pioneer. And that's, that's the pioneer in scopes. <laughs> that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, just hearing how you pretty much move from one bit and you're building up and building up and getting more experience from that. Uh, it's a documentary I, I, I look forward to seeing. Uh, for those who are listening and want to find out more about yourself as a filmmaker, as well as Pioneers in Skirts, how can people reach out to you, find out your social media tags, etc.? Sure. Pioneers and Skirts is all over Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And then uh, we have a website, pioneersandskirts.com. Uh, Leanne and myself, mother-daughter team, we're on social media as well. And I think um, people will have a lot of fun seeing what it's like for a mother-daughter to work together. And it's, it's good. It's good. It's working out. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we have YouTube. Um, uh, we're building up our YouTube channel. But the most important thing is Pioneers and Skirts right now is available to screen. So uh, we're encouraging people to bring the film to their community, their company, and start having this dialogue. We speak a lot about these issues. Um, again, we want, we want it to be a comfortable, supportive environment so that, you know, if somebody is, is new to this conversation, they don't feel like they're being attacked. That's really important, too. Uh, so yeah, we've built this kind of world around pioneers where we want to educate you and we want to encourage you to see what the other person's going through next to you and actually do something. That is fantastic. Ashley, thank you very much for joining us to talk to us about Pioneers in Skirts, which is currently in the Paris International Film Festival. Uh, we wish you all the best with this project in the festival, as well as having life uh, outside of it as well. And we welcome you to come back on the show anytime to talk more about women in film, as well as, you know, other topics and everything else that you want to talk I about. Like
and, and you can get your your mother to join us as well and we can have a conversation about uh, the mother daughter um, in fact that'll be a completely new topic and we'll <laughs> talk about the mother daughter dynamic on a film set it's good it, it's actually quite fun i would love to do it <laughs> You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and we're joined by, I guess, one half of the duo who was supposed to be talking to me about their project that is currently in Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your name and the name of your project. Hi, my name is Kehlani Rose. I'm one of the producers and also the lead on our web series, Flimsy. Excellent, Kalani. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, question, what is Flimsy about? Flimsy is about <laughs> two struggling artists chasing their dreams, coming up against all sorts of ridiculous obstacles and just doing their best to make it through and keep going. And when you say artists, uh, what form of art are we talking? So we have Cadence who is wanting to be a world-class DJ and her bestie and roommate, Fina, who is um, an actor. And Cadice is played by you? That's correct. Excellent. And you have Fina, who's played by uh, Chelsea Reist. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Reist, yeah. Excellent. Reist, sorry. I, anyone who listens to the show knows that I butcher last names <laughs> and I, I apologize uh, to you're Chelsea. You're forgiven. Thank Chelsea you. Definitely forgive you. That's um, yeah, good. You might recognize her from um, The 100 on CW. I thought. I thought that face looked familiar. I looked at it, I was like, um, I've seen this face before, but then again, it's like, because I've, I've watched tons and tons of projects and uh, in films and whatnot. So I just think, yeah, it might've been so, but yes, if it was the, if it was uh, 100, then I definitely recognize her. Um, oh, so tell us, as you're one of the uh, producers on the project, what inspired this project? Ooh, well, it was dead in the center of lockdown. We were in total quarantine and me and my co-producer Prince Ford were just itching to be creative and, and, and just make something positive. It felt like such a heavy time. And um, <clears throat> it kind of started with this joke. We were looking at um, sort of like TikTok memes and we were like, oh my gosh, what, wouldn't it be so funny if we could film this? And that's kind of how it started. It went from zero to 100 so fast. and. The cool thing about this one is like we were able to connect with um, folks in my home in, in the city where I live, which is Vancouver, and he lives in LA. And we we reached out to other of our, our community in I think we ended up with five different countries, 13 different actors by the time we finished Cassie and like putting this whole thing together. And it was just um, a way for us to connect and like laugh and stay positive and the whole, the cool thing about this is we, um, we made magic. So the illusion that we're all together in the same room, despite the fact that we were all filming it in quarantine. Holy smokes. That sounds, that sounds amazing. I mean, <laughs> there's another project. It's not funnily enough, another web series that is also part of the uh, Paris International Film Festival, uh, which is Riddles of Zoom, which uh, had the same sort of uh, situation that you had. Are all actors wanting to carry on working through uh, through the pandemic can't do that. They're all in separate countries, and but their framework is different. What they do is they use the the framework of you know talking on Zoom, and so that's what they they do. You, on the other hand, you've taken it one step further. You're basically trying to replicate, or not replicate, but you're trying to recreate the idea of all of you being in the same room. If I understand this correctly, all of you being in the same room, even though you are countries apart is that correct 
Exactly, exactly. It was quite a challenge, but we had an amazing cinematographer, Tracy Coney, who was just so inventive about mapping out the space in each of our zones and like putting it all together so that it was pretty seamless. Like, I, I, you know, I have some friends who've seen it that were like, wait, you guys weren't together? And so, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty satisfying to feel like we, we were able to do that. <laughs> and this is a web series. So how many episodes, how, sorry, how many minutes per episode? Hmm. It's about four to five minutes on average and it's 13 chapters. That's fantastic. Honestly, um, it is, is, uh, we know that it's currently in the Paris International Film Festival. Uh, so how did you get connected with Genesuru and the team behind that festival? We have um, an amazing team that's helping us with our film festivals this year. Um, Rebecca, the film festival doctor, she's been navigating navigating this with us. And just... Her name pops up quite a bit. She's been on the show. Uh, so we, 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 we know Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Uh, Karen. Yeah, she's a rock star. We love her. <laughs> uh, so she connected you with the uh, Paris International Film Festival. With regards to the, the 13 chapters that you have, is it is is Paris International Film Festival going to be where the web series is debuted, or is it currently online for people to watch? It's not currently online for people to watch. We are um, we're going to see how the rest of the film festival circuit goes, and we have actually some exciting um, exciting stuff in the works to actually to actually bring it to to life in a conventional format. So we'll see, we're just kind of waiting. COVID really has us in that, that holding pattern. <laughs> I know, I totally, I totally understand what you mean. Lots of projects have been dropped because of COVID, uh, but you know, we're glad to hear that you, that you and your team and the cast and crew uh, uh, the, speaking of which, uh, pr the producer, one of your producers, Prince, who you mentioned, has just come in. I'm just going to admit him in to the Zoom session and uh, and we'll get him to introduce himself. And we've just, as we're talking about cast and crew, we've got somebody else who's part of the project just coming on. Please tell us your name and your role on Flimsy. Well, what's up? My name is Prince Board, spelled P-R-I-N-T-Z. And uh, my role in Flimsy is a co-creator alongside Kehlani, and I did all the original music. Fantastic. Uh, Prince, uh, Kehlani has been doing a great job selling us on Flimsy. Uh, I, I knew nothing about it coming into this interview. And with what she's described with all the challenges and the obstacles that you've overcome to get this project done, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to watch all 13 chapters of this film, of this uh, miniseries. Tell us from your perspective, I know Kalani has already mentioned how she got involved and how she sort of co collaborated with you. What was, what was your perspective when the idea was born? The idea was <laughs> when, uh, you know, quarantine and lockdown, all that hit, I said, I was like, what can we do? And I remember Kay late night doing these Shakespeare monologues. You know, we might have a little wine. And then she was like, yo, let me break it down. And she would do these monologues. And that's not really my world coming from music. And she would do it to a T. And I was like, when the quarantine hit, I thought, oh, what if we did these things like with you and somebody else like in London? Literally, I said that. <laughs> I was like, you're in... Vancouver there in London and you guys get like one couch in each place and then we put it so it looks like you guys are both doing it in the same room and um, she was like oh that sounds dope that sounds great except 
We need a story. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, many a project has been have been created, shot, put out there without a story. I'm not going to mention any in particular, but many have skipped that particular obstacle of not having a story and just being shunted into our into our televisions for us to see. So that's not a major challenge, but I see where she's coming from. Yeah, I was I was definitely, you know, more about the the magic of passing a glass of wine from London to LA or something like that and going, "Oh yeah, the magic." You put your hand out the frame. She's like, "Yeah, okay, but what are you saying? And why are we saying it?" That's that's a that's a very good point. Sorry. <laughs> Kalani, I want to jump to you just for a second. So, uh, just with regards to the technical, with the technicalities of how you actually structured it, I know you have an amazing cinematographer on board. But again, Prince has just ma- mentioned that, right? One person's in Vancouver, the other person is in London. Say, how do you construct the same set piece or the same set? Do you do set dressing? Is it with uh, visual effects afterwards just to be able to keep everything looking like you're in the same room? We had some meetings at the beginning of production where we basically, each of us went through our space and said, okay, this is our main room. This is our bedroom. This is the office. This is what we have in the space. And we kind of mapped it out so that we would only ever show a certain corner or a certain half of that space so that we had this, this entire apartment that was like this piece from her place this piece from my place and this piece from over there I think it was her boyfriend's place was was the third option and we just kind of created this like um different reality that we were in um and then we also used props a lot of the time so we had to like figure out who has a matching yellow feather duster and how are we going to pass that so that it's the same or like a, a blanket that we had the similar color that we just put on the couch that it kind of like was in her frame in my frame yeah i can see how that can destroy the illusion when one person is passing over uh, for example you've got an an orange iphone case it's like oh there's a there's a call for you you pass it over and it comes through and it's just a black iphone case that comes <laughs> back in i can see how that would destroy the mystique of, uh, of what it is you're trying to create. Uh, Prince, just want to come back to you. Uh, um, Kalani has already explained that her character was a DJ and you're coming from the music background. Um, am I right in assuming that you added your influence to the story with that in mind? Um, not really because Kay is a DJ. So she's an actress, dancer and a DJ. So she had that part on lock. Um, but you know, I offered the the notes and the beats to make the whole thing move. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's fantastic. So you produced you you produced the music for for um for flimsy. Yeah, yeah, all original scores. Like so, when we would do a scene, I would basically pull it up here. We were editing in the front room. I would like watch the edit as it was happening, and then come in the back room and write the song. What sort of influences did inspired you? when creating the music or the sound for this miniseries? Um, I was inspired just by ourselves. And I think, um, you know, our influences for this were Fleabag, uh, Insecure, um, Shits Creek, Shameless, these kind of things. And probably musically, we, pro- we lean a little heavier on the Insecure side. You know, we just kind of liked how it was real music that we would listen to, that we would party to, and it made it feel more at home for us. 
you've you've already, you've got me locked with. I mean, Kalani already got me locked with the story idea and what everything went. Uh, this you know what went into creating this, but you pretty much got me hooked with Fleabag and Insecure, two of my favorite TV shows uh, of all time. So that's that's fantastic. Uh, we so we know that it is currently in the Paris International Film Festival. Um, I know you, Kalani, you mentioned earlier that you have a team already working on what's going to happen afterwards. Where would you see this in, in your ideal situation? Prince, let me ask you this. Where would you see this project landing in the ideal situation? Ideal would be having a home at a network uh, a la Netflix or something where we can do series after series after series. I mean, we have three already, three seasons already written for this for flimsy so if we could land there um i think one really 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 important thing and i don't know if she brought it up but is that the whole thing is pink it's a light pink she did not mention that aspect of the project no she no she didn't kalani <laughs> did you <laughs> so uh you know when you say orange iphone to black iphone we kind of took a lot of that out by making it black and white and then adding a pink film so now those are the same colors. And yeah, um, we did the first episode, the first season like that, based on the strong female relationships. And then for season two, we have a, a lot of male relationships coming in. Um, she finds out she has a brother. Um, and she didn't know about stuff with her dad, um, a boyfriend. So that will have a hue of blue across the top. The third season will be green our relationship with money and nature and stuff like that. So, you know, we have a plan and we would love to see that live somewhere, somewhere where they can give it the viewership that it needs to have, you know? That sounds terrific. And I, I, I say this, honestly, I am really intrigued in, in the idea. I want to see it mainly from a, from a filmmaker's perspective. I want to see exactly how you did it because that would inspire me to do the same. Um, and I, I'll absolutely love to see it. Prince Kalani, uh, where can people get to follow you, your work, this project? How can people follow you on social media? Sounds good. I'm at Kehlani Elizabeth Rose, which is K-E-I-L-A-N-I, Elizabeth, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H, Rose, R-O-S-E. Fantastic. And Prince? Uh, Prince Board, P-R-I-N-T-Z, B-O-A-R-D. And the series itself has um, an Instagram, which is flimsy the series fantastic thank you very much uh both of you for joining us on shoot the breeze on resonance 104.4 fm we wish you all the best at paris international film festival and we will definitely have you back on board to talk to us whether whether or not netflix have picked this show up we will get you back on to spend an hour at least chatting with you on flimsy and finding out more as to what happens in the series you're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and I have another filmmaker whose uh, uh, program is in is part of the Paris International Film Festival this year. Please tell us your name and the name of your program. Hello, everyone. Uh, the film uh, that I directed titled Scream, and um, yeah, it's going to take place, and you can watch it at... Uh, Paris International Film Festival at the beginning of February. <laughs> Fantastic. And Nora, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, tell us, what is Cream about? Uh, Cream is a contemporary love story, actually, in a kind of fairy tale coat 
It's about the challenges of love relationships today. And the story is about a pastry shop girl who is uh, mad about romantic films. And the story begins with the fact that her uh, boyfriend uh, breaks up with her and even marries another woman, unfortunately. <laughs> so it's not easy for her. And uh, to sweeten her heartbreak, she decides to open a pastry shop where all the pastry is named after famous love couples from film history. But soon she runs out of money and has to close her pastry shop as well. So there is only one chance to keep her startup and also maybe get back her ex-boyfriend. And it is a so-called love laboratory where family businesses can get financial support. So from that point on, um, she starts lying like hell. <laughs> and um, actually, I don't want to tell more about this story. I don't want to spoiler it. So just you should just go and watch the film. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. I mean, as you were talking, I was getting uh, uh, like bits and bit uh, like feelings from different types of films like Chocolat and uh, Amelie. Uh, is that, would I be right in assuming that that's the same sort of uh, romantic, uh, a, a, you know, the lighthearted romantic uh, comedy that your film is, is, is it that type? Or is it I mean, deep, uh, you know, soul exploration uh, <laughs> drama that you that I have completely gotten the, the wrong, wrong <laughs> the stick no, no, on? No. no, you're absolutely right. And actually we, uh, most of the time, uh, get the same feedback, even from those who have already seen the film. So uh, Chocolat and Amelia is always come up. And I'm really happy uh, with it because uh, these are fantastic films. And yeah, maybe uh, our film is a bit more uh, modern in a way. So it takes place nowadays and it's really about um, city people who has uh, challenges and uh, has to cope with uh, everyday love relationship problems. Like, um, you know, that we are surrounded uh, with uh, romantic films and love songs that suggest some kind of picture that is quite a fake picture about how should a love relationship looks like and how we should behave in it. And then uh, all of a sudden, if you really chase only for that kind of uh, love, then uh, it's a straight way to hell. So you will never get happy at the end. And uh, that's what uh, the main message may be to somehow accept um, the imperfect, imperfect uh, relationships and our faults and our partner faults and even try to love these faults. And that could help um, to... Um, create a long-lasting uh, good relationship at the end. And it sounds like a like a film buff's dream because as you're talking about the fact that she opens up the pastry shop, a lot of the pastries are named after famous couples. Uh, yeah. So it's famous, um, not famous, did I get that right? Famous film couples as opposed to... Yes. Yes, so characters in film as opposed to, for example, uh, Richard Burton and uh, Elizabeth... Uh, oh, what's her last name? um cleopatra um yeah yeah uh, exactly so you so so you're not talking about the actual no, not the actual actors but the characters yeah the characters, it's like fantastic. um yeah like um from any whole uh Woody Allen and uh, oh, uh exactly. and, and uh, robert redford and barbara streisand uh, and uh, that kind of uh epic love stories that end uh, in a bad way at the end. <laughs> so, they, so they all tra end tragically. So in the yeah, sense- Yeah, these are the tragic uh, film history <laughs> couples. So, so it's, there's a danger there that there are gonna be serious spoilers when you're watching the film. If you hear about a particular, you hear one of the pastries being sold, 
and you hear the name and you recognize which film it's from and you haven't seen that film, you would think, yeah. well, that's basically ruined that relationship for me. Uh, and you don't have something like when Harry met, you know, Harry met Sa- yeah. Harry and Sally. Yeah, but these are films that probably everybody has seen at least once. So <laughs> fair, enough, fair enough. That makes perfect sense. What inspired you to do this film? The original story came from Fruzina Fekete, who is also a Hungarian uh, scriptwriter. It was inspired her uh, story in real life, which was almost the same as our protagonist uh, story at the beginning that her ex-boyfriend left or boyfriend left her and and married another woman. So this is how the story starts. But actually, I think that everybody can relate it as I can relate as I could, because, you know, uh, all the time, or at least once in your life, it happens that you get into a relationship that really doesn't help you, but for some reason you still in it and you still explain yourself why you should continue it and and then uh, you just have to learn how to let go things that doesn't really make you happy and uh, and actually this is uh, the path of uh, our protagonist as well so this is the main problem of her but also uh, that we have also already talked about uh, that kind of fake a picture about love so these uh, the combination of these two is something that probably sounds similar to many <laughs> and uh, uh, and and that that was the main inspiration but also um uh, because I mentioned that uh, our protagonist got into this love laboratory and uh, I found the book while we were uh, writing the script and it, uh, it was uh, written by John M. Gottman, who is a psychologist uh, in the States and uh, runs an actual love laboratory where a couple can go there and uh, after five minutes, uh, he tells if they would stay together for long term or they will split. Uh, soon <laughs> and and it's it's you know uh, I was wondering if I would go there with my partner or not <laughs> but yeah uh, but I, how how yeah. effect how effective is how effective are the results from that uh, from that business yeah yeah uh, I think that uh, actually <laughs> but they do it's it's of course more complicated than <laughs> than this and they do um, um, therapies for couples and uh, but they also do examine couples and I think that's really interesting to go through these tests and uh, they just see that okay if you put you are put in a uh, so now you fight uh, for any reason and then okay how do you deal with it and then ah okay so it means that uh, you cannot solve this or that and is it possible that you can make it a, a better relationship at the end or you could uh, improve your communication or or it's just a waste of time <laughs> well you see the, the problem i see with that is you have you have it's the same thing as sort of like predicting the future right so i can i can imagine a couple would come in and depending on what the analysis says it could be whatever and all this the therapist has to say is no we'll take your money but from what we see you two won't last six months it's fine and then the the fact that that couple now leave that room with the impression that somebody else a third party has said that they won't see they won't last three months or six months and what that eventually does is it plants that seed which then grows and both of them say you know what it's already been told to us by professionals that we won't last we might as well just pack it up and then they split which reinforces what that lab have already said and the reverse is the case where if they say no you two actually will stay together if you then again you're planting that seed in the, in the couple who when they leave they think 
well, we thought we would want to leave and separate because we think that's best for us. However, the experts have said that there's something there. So we might as well try and work. And so that's, it's but, the same yeah, thing. I think as you're Cara absolutely Curry. right. And the result can uh, determine the future of the uh, couple, but, for sure. But actually, uh, 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 they, uh, they are not told in the, after the five minutes that, okay, what's going to happen with you? It's only like, uh, for example, sometimes they don't say anything to the, uh, to the couples and then just uh, have these notes for themselves um, uh, and then they go after these couples like every year and uh, see how they uh, their relationship unfold and uh, and they say that uh, like 99% they are right <laughs> but actually it was only the beginning you know it, it was an inspirational thing that but it's really interesting because we also had the same toast that now you did and it raises so many other questions as well so I, I we just told that it it it's a really interesting place to put different couples, uh, newly married couples, a couple that are together for 10 years and those so, uh, who on the age of divorcing but want to make a business and lying among themselves and, and all these different couples and just clash them and just to see how they work uh, in the, under, um, under pressure actually. <laughs> no, that, that makes total sense. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako and I'm here with Nora Lakosh who is with her film, Cream, which is at Paris International Film Festival. Uh, tell us, how did you get to find out about Paris International Film Festival? Actually, through Film Privé, <laughs> uh, the platform where you can enter films. And uh, yeah, I found it and I found that, oh, it's fantastic, it looks fantastic. So I entered and then I was really happy to uh, get um, mail that uh, we got in and and not only in the competition but we are the valentine special <laughs> so uh of and course that, right you, you you have the film about love it has to be yeah, on valentine's day yeah absolutely fits to the topic so i'm really happy for that <laughs> uh, absolutely um so uh, is this is uh, paris international film festival the first uh, showing of this film or is it just along the film festival path no, actually, it's uh, it's gonna be the second uh, international film festival for Cream. We just uh, started uh, the festival circuit, and uh, our film was released in the Hungarian cinemas at uh, September uh, 2020. And yeah, we had one festival, and that was the first festival, uh, Firenze International Film Festival for Women, which is the Cinema e Donna <laughs> International Film Festival, and we won the main prize there, so award there as the Ooh, best congratulations. feature. So <laughs> that was the first festival and the first award, and we hope for even more. <laughs> Absolutely, and we wish you all the best at Paris International Film Festival. It sounds like a, a terrifically uh, uplifting film, and I, I, you know, I wish I get a chance to to watch it. We wish you all the best at the festival. Thank you so much. Not a problem. No, thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm producer Dave and uh, we've got some guests who are going to be talking about their film that's going to be shown at the Paris International Film Festival. Please introduce yourselves. Let me uh, translate for him. Uh, uh, hello, audience from France. 
I'm the director and the screenwriter Liu Zi of the movie Being Mortal. Please tell us about your film. Uh, uh, this film basically reflects different life choices by surrounding an ordinary family in the face of difficulties. Uh, showing thinking about family relationships, affection, and dignity. That这个故事讲的是在外地的一个京剧团工作的呃，这个女女主角夏天，呃，通过一番周折以后，然后回到父母所在的所居住的这个城市工作，然后她这样就可以。呃，更方便的去呃，有助于帮助呃母亲一起去照顾患有已经患了十年阿兹海默综合症的这个父亲，同时呢还可以逃离失恋的呃这个生心地。呃，Well, uh, and the story is about a girl whose name is Xia Tian, transfer her job, go back to her hometown in order to take care of her dad who get Alzheimer's for over ten years. Uh, meanwhile, she can escape from the place she lost her love.呃，但是夏天没有想到的是，他的这一决定，呃，却让嗯，没想到让父，让让母亲，呃，陷入一个呃一个焦虑困境当中。呃，然后当他回来以后，随着父亲病情的发展，呃，他原本以为自己回
等待死亡的这个气息所吸引。呃，同时自己之前做过一个纪录片，也跟这个呃有关老年家庭的纪录片，呃，对小说当中所涉及的这个老年话题，呃，很熟悉。那么同时。呃，自己身边也有类似的人物，小说当中类似的人物呈现出来类类似的人物或者事件经历，呃呃，有相同的地方，所以说我可以很轻松的把自己的生命体悟与小说进行一个完美的嫁接。Uh, and I have made a documentary about this uh, elderly fam uh, family before. I'm familiar with this group, and there are similar characters or events around me. I can easily combine my life experience with the novel. Uh, 还有最关键的一点其实就是，呃，这是一个家庭题材。然后我近期近两年比较喜欢失之愈合，呃，它可能呃，我可以更靠近我的一个。展示这一个阶段喜欢的一个，我认为是大师的一个导演的一个距离，呃，同时，呃，制作这个制作这部影片的制作成本，它相对可以呃相对小一些，呃，在这个阶段我更容易把控一些。呃、uh, ，Well, another reason is、uh, this is a family subject, and uh, uh, I have a very uh, uh, favorite uh, Japanese director. Uh, he always direct uh, uh, movies about uh, families, uh, and so so I want to uh, direct a family film just like him. Uh, and uh, uh, because of uh, the budget of a family uh, film is uh, is all right, <laughs> I can control it. <laughs> so uh, that is another reason. You said that the father suffers from Alzheimer's. How much? Uh, research did you do on that subject? Ah, uh, is this? 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 Uh, well, as I uh, uh, recommend before, there are uh, similar character around me, and that character is uh, the grand uh, grandmother of my wife, and she has Alzheimer's for over eight years, okay. and uh, her husband for taking uh, taking care taking care of her for her whole life. So every time I visit them, and I can easily uh, feel the. Uh, situation of her disease and the uh, family relationship and the love relationship between uh, uh, between them. So, so, I, 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 so, 呃，很庞大的一个老年家庭，就是说，他的母亲在九十多岁，他最大的儿子，呃，已已经已经有七十多岁，就七十多岁，而且他是家里有九个孩子，就最小的孩子也六十多岁了。That's one of the reason, uh, and one of the uh, uh, reason that I uh 
uh, can get the situation of this Alzheimer's disease. And another reason is uh, uh, I sh made a documentary about uh, uh, elder people before, and uh, this uh, this elder people uh, is uh, about uh, over ninety years old, and uh, her son is about over seventy years old. Uh, so uh, when I uh, be with them, uh, and uh, I just uh, feel the power of the family re uh, relationship uh, between them, and uh, that that's also gave me some uh, inspiration. Uh,因为这次创作，那么我对这个老年人的他整个对一个家庭关系，还有老年人的一个内心的一个状态，我是比较熟悉的。Uh, uh, so, uh, because of this uh, uh, film shooting, uh, I, uh, I get uh, known the uh, physically of elder people more deeply. 所以我就把这些我生活当中的这些人跟事我所能触及到的我都把它就是放这些情感这些感知都放到这个影片的创作与改编当中。So I put all my inspiration from, from my life put in this view. Excellent. So you're basically saying that it's something that you know about and that's what you're shooting about. That's the, the film is something that you are acutely aware of personally, so therefore it comes across on screen. Yeah, that's right. Let me uh, translate for him. Uh, so uh, he said thank you and uh, he think uh, uh, you uh, uh, as a, a, film, a filmmaker as a director you must uh, feel in your life uh, truly feel in your life and uh, put your self-awareness into your uh, into into your work and uh, when you uh, can uh, touch audience only because you can touch yourself and then you can touch your uh, your audience because they can feel what you feel in 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 in, uh, in life excellent so you've put this you've committed to to um to the screen and you are going to show this at the paris film festival so what are your thoughts of the paris international film festival uh,说实话,我对所有的电影节可能都不是非常了解,因为从创作方面来说,作为导演,我还算是一个新人导演,因为之前的两部纪录片也没有去参与太多的电影节。Well, uh, tell the truth, as a new director, I still need to familiar with the film festival, uh, because uh, before I haven't uh, attending any film uh, film festival before. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Yeah,但是提到法国,提到巴黎,我是非常激动的,因为这个法国巴黎被称为艺术之都,电影之都,在那个地方有很多伟大的电影导演以及电影都来自这里。Uh, uh, 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 u
but uh, when uh, mentioning uh, France and uh, Paris is a uh, is very exciting, uh, especially uh, Paris and France is known as the capital of art and the capital of movies. Uh, many great film directors and movies come from here. Uh, 呃，有呃，有艾里克·侯麦导演，然后有特里弗导演，有让·吕克·戈达尔导演，以及还有呃，戛纳电影节的常客，就是这个呃，菲利普·加瑞尔导演。呃，Well, there used to be a new wave of movies here. Uh, are many famous directors, uh, like Eric Romer. Uh, Francis Chofat, Ron Luc Godard, Philip Garrow, a regular at the Cannes Film Festival. Well, as far as I know, the initiator of the Paris International Film Festival is also one of the organizers of the Cannes International Film Festival. And with the genes and the excellent film festival in it. 所以我觉得我的电影节能够在法国国际电影节上面去放映是一件非常荣幸、非常幸福的一件事情。So as all this, I just feel a great honor that my film can show at this film festival. 我感觉好像我跟戛纳电影节有了某种联系一样。And I think through this film festival, I have some connection with the Cannes Film International International Film Festival. So you're saying that this is your first film, and this is your first film festival. Am I correct? Uh,它不是我的，呃，它是我的第一部剧情长片。嗯，但是在法国，这是我参加的第一个电影节。呃，在国内有参加过。平遥国际电影展，呃，还有那个海南，呃，到国际电影展，呃，然后国外还有几个像那个，呃，之前咱们有有哪个电影节来？嗯，巴西，呃，有巴西，呃，有参与巴西上网络国际电影节，啊，
能没能到现场，基本都是线上，呃，线上放映，啊，所以说很难去，呃，去亲身感知到一个电影节的一个氛围，或者说与电国内电影节的一个区别。嗯，呃、uh, ，so because of the Corona COVID nineteen, uh, I haven't been to any film festival event. Except for the China's uh, uh, China's film festival event, uh, so uh, I think it's a little it's a, such a pity that uh, I cannot view the uh, uh, view the uh, view the enthusiastic from the audience of the different country. Looking forward to seeing your film, and also, can you tell us how can listeners find out more about yourself and your film? Uh, what social media handles that have you got? I think that now, because the film has not yet been released, the only opportunity to see this film is in our Bali International Film Festival. And of course, I hope that in the future, I can have more opportunities to see the film in France or other countries. Um, mm. uh, so uh, my previous uh, documentary hasn't uh, been released due to some reasons, uh, but uh, being mortal, this film can be seen the festival, and uh, I look forward to being able to communicate with the French uh, French audience in more channels in the future. Since we haven't uh, released in the market yet, uh, so we haven't uh, uh, have any website. But uh, uh, if audience or uh, media uh, media can touch us with the Google email address. Thank you very very much for coming. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and I'm David Campbell. And we have another filmmaker that has his film in the Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your name and the name of the film. Hi, uh, my name is Denis Dobrovoda. Uh, I'm a director and writer of uh, Savage, which is screening uh, at the festival. Fantastic. Denis, tell us what is Savage about? Uh, so Savage is about... Um, a man who is brought over from the Congo uh, during the colonial period and he's brought to London to appear in a uh, human exhibition uh, and it's based on uh, true on a kind of a number of true accounts that were put together uh, in the script. You've already had this film going out it's already in so certain um... Uh, uh, awards already won some or had some nominations for certain awards uh, and you have the, the young African man uh, Uchena Aniedu is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Uchena Aniedu yes that's his name Uchena Aniedu yes yeah you say, you say you say it's based on a on real events tell us what inspired you to make this film so I came across this subject for the first time when I was um, at university and I was doing uh, colonial history uh, and uh and I was um, shocked, obviously, when I came across it, because it's something that I think in the West has been swept under the carpet a lot. Much like, you know, colonialism in general, people don't like to talk about it because uh, it's um, very difficult for the societies to um, 
to come to terms with it. So I think the general approach to this has been, let's not talk about it, let's not think about it, let's kind of throw it away. And uh, what was interesting is that after I first came across it, at the time there wasn't really much you could read about these topics. I'm talking now maybe 2010. And, uh, and I kind of kept going back it and I bought some books that came out later on. And, uh, and as I was reading more, I was just finding it more and more shocking actually, and more and more incredible uh, because this, the human zoos and the human exhibitions were happening in Belgium. The last one was in 1958. So it's really very recent. And it's not something that we grow up with knowing about. That's how the film came about, really. It's quite much of a coincidence because we had on the show another uh, another filmmaker, uh, Denim Richards, who uh, had another sh- had a short film as well. I think it was just called The Zoo, which was kind of looking at the same sort of uh, themes that you had where, uh, but that was set more in the Second World War in Germany, where you had uh, captives from Africa being taken to Germany and put in this human zoo, just as you're de- demonstrating. You're looking at it more at, at the point where it's actually something that happened in Britain as well. So it's quite easy for certain cultures to be able to look at other cultures and say, no, you're racist. Or, no, you are more racist. No, you did things that were horrible. No, you did things that were horrible. It, it's sort of, it, it's really eye-opening to see how a lot of cultures actually partook in such what we consider such barbaric acts, something that you would say there is no way a human would actually think to do that to another human being. Um, it also, again, ties to another film that is actually in the Paris Film Festival as well, Paris International Film Festival, called High Score, where we had this conversation with the filmmakers and they were talking about how uh, people, how um, white supremacists tend to regard uh, people who are black, usually not as humans, but as tools. Uh, and in your in your film, you're seeing it more that the, the white race looking at black people, not as humans, but as animals, right? So you can, you can actually examine in a zoo or a museum. Now, what was the, just me considering myself as an actor, looking at you as a white director, white mm-hmm. filmmaker making this film, I'm trying to put myself in uh, Uchena's position, the actor who plays the main character. Um, and I'm just thinking sort of, uh, again, I haven't seen your film yet. And I just, uh, I want to, I really want to see your film because I want to see that sort of the way you depict uh, the main character himself and how you depict everyone else around. I want to ask you as a filmmaker, what were your thoughts going into this particular project with regards to approaching something so culturally sensitive, especially in uh, in, in the time that we are at at the moment where uh, it is very easy for, I'm just going to say cancel culture to essentially identify uh, filmmakers, artists who are trying to put a point across, but because of the, you know, the color of their skin, because of their perspective, uh, they may be seen as, you know, use an example, the whole blackface argument um, where white people paint up as black people and go out either etc but then they're accused of a cultural appropriation of not being able of not presenting stories with the relevant perspective or relevant um, uh, tone of voice to be able to do so i want to ask you as a white filmmaker what were your thoughts going into this particular project on how you could sort of avoid those uh, those holes those potholes uh, in getting this story across yeah i think this is a brilliant question and actually it's uh 
I'm glad that you ask it because it's a kind of courageous question because obviously, um, you know, skin color in this particular project is, is, is a huge issue. I was very, very aware of this. And to truth be told, I, at, there were moments when I kind of um, considered just not making the film at all because I thought, um, you know, I'm white. It's, it, it's not really right for me to be doing this. Uh, and um, I mean, one, one of the things that was incredible is that, for example, Uchenna, who now calls himself Florence Wenzefi, I think he, he now has a different artistic name, was a person who uh, really got the, and, and in general, I had people of um, color on the team who kind of got the, the idea uh, really uh, straight away uh, and understood what this was about. And my, my approach in which, um, uh, which was, I think, crucial from my perspective was that I did an incredible amount um, of anthropological research to the point that I read sort of everything that there is on this, also both in English and actually there's more stuff on it than French. So I did most of my reading. There are some really good academics in France who are dealing with this. Uh, and a lot of the dialogues, for example, uh, a lot of the stuff that people say in the film uh, and the scenes as well, they are, they are taken word for word from historical sources and from things like this. And uh, and this was something because I had this terrible fear of, of this being projected somewhere, screened somewhere, and then people standing up and saying, you know, go to hell. What are you doing? How, how can you be doing this? And actually what's been incredible is that uh, I went to the US with the film to a few festivals where I had the biggest sort of fear of, you know, there it's, I think the um, these issues are the most sensitive almost in a way. And actually there were people who came to me afterwards or who were asking questions and they were all always extremely positive, whatever ethnic background they came from. And I think they understood that it's, um, that it's all authentic, that it's not some kind of a stunt. It's not um, trying to, you know, um, get attention for the sake of it, that it's an, uh, that it really is a real thing. No, I, I understand that completely, which is the reason why I asked that question. I mean, yeah. and I'm sh as you, as you've clearly pointed out, um, I I personally I'm one of those people I'm I'm not a I'm not one of the yelly yelly voices people because mm -hmm. as soon as as soon as this conversation comes up I I, I said it in a previous uh, episode you literally you you most likely will have um you have loads of people talking about it right so you'll have two camps the ones who are heard the loudest are usually the ones who are yelling that what you're doing is either wrong or the ones who are yelling that what you're doing is absolutely right and it should mm -hmm. be told. But with the the tone and with the actual message that they're yelling is completely antithetical to what you're actually trying to say, and unfortunately, that's what dominates the conversation. Just those two yelling voices, the middle ground, the people who have simple discussions or quieter, nuanced discussions, are the ones that get drowned out. With your project as it is, with the name, with the content, you know that you're going to be just saying this you're going to bait those that conversation because for one the title savage immediately will get people's backs up because you're going to mm -hmm. have the fact that that's what you're addressing we know who the character is we know who it is secondly you're going to have people who are going to look at your face and imagine straight away if you're naming your project savage there must be a reason and so on so uh, I, I, I would love to exactly you're poking the bear and i definitely want to watch mm -hmm. your film um I'm deeply intrigued to watch your film, to learn more about it, to see which 
at what perspective you're coming from. And I definitely want to have you back on the show after I've watched the film so that I can decide which part of the conversation I want to be. I want to see if I will, I will be well, either I'll, a... I'll, Sorry, I would love that. I mean, I'd love that. I can, but all I can say, I mean, the film won a best screenplay award at a, a quite a major American human rights festival. It won a, uh, one of the jury prizes at Woods Hole in the US. Uh, and like, in, I mean, everywhere I've got come with the film, despite my, and you know, even people saw who I was <laughs> and they, they still, um, in general, it still got very positive responses from, people of all kinds of ethnicities and I would say even probably actually more so from non-white people in a way uh, which was great because that's where my biggest fear and, and that's good that's and that's the reason why I'm I, like I said I'm not casting any judgments on the film until I watch it and I, I guess more power to you because essentially I want to watch this film I definitely want to watch this film and so that way I can make my own mind up and I definitely want to have you back on the show so we can talk more about it after we've watched it now the show Savage the, the film Savage is the short is currently uh, is going to be playing at the Paris International Film Festival. Tell us, how did you get involved with the Paris International Film Festival? Well, I had a um, very, very good uh, English company called Festival Formula, who work with uh, filmmakers who make short films and feature films, but mainly shorts, and they create kind of festival strategies for them, and they send them around. And uh, and actually, uh, one of the last festivals they, they sent it to was the Paris International Film Festival. And... Uh, and uh, it's going to be the last screening, believe it or not. So it's uh, exciting. Uh, and then we'll try for some internet distribution. Yeah, so it, it's a great way to sort of wrap up the, the festival with something yeah, with exactly. a gut punch of your, of your film. That's fantastic. We're happy to, to uh, champion that. And like I said, I'm looking forward to watching the film and getting you back on the show to talk about it. Uh, where can people reach you on social media uh, to be able to find out more about the film, find out more about your work? My website, which is dobrovoda.com, D-O-B-R-O-V-O-D-A.com. Uh, that's where my Instagram and all my other films are as well. So you can watch my things. Uh, Fantastic. Just, just, just one, sorry, just one thing, just to go back to the name of the name Savage. Actually, one of the, it's kind of ironic in the film because, I mean, the the idea, this, this, this word is used a lot in it by the white characters but the question is who is the savage here do you know oh no i i i, I get it i i it's it's that's the thing that's the reason why david and i said that um you were literally poking the bear it's and it's i totally get the fact even without watching it i and hearing your hearing you talk about it i know what your intention is of the film it's not essentially to say that this person is actually a savage, it's to basically flip the the tables on the fact that while everybody, all the white characters in the film are looking at this one black person in the museum and calling him a savage, he's not the savage. The savage is actually the person who would consider another human being as an animal to put them in a cage. And as such, that would be, it's, of course, it's, get it completely. It's, if anything, it reminds me of um, A Brave New World. So uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where um, the, you know, when you, st- when you start reading the book, it goes into the fact that uh, London has, they consider themselves now civilized and people outside of London are the savages. And they bring somebody who's considered a savage into their community 
and that person sort of unravels the entire uh, facade of the of this civilized you know civilization it, it, it's a common uh, theme with a lot of films uh, as such so trust me when i say i get mm-hmm. your intention with the book i with the film it, i'm at no point do i feel insulted by the naming of the mm-hmm. film or what the content is for the fact that you're a white filmmaker doing this film mm-hmm. i can tell you I, but mm-hmm. here's the thing i that's the reason why i'm saying i want to watch the film I want to watch the film and that will confirm what I think it is. If I watch the film, however, and it's completely opposite, I will bring you back on the show. I will bring you back on the show and I can guarantee you there will be some, there'll be some blood shit. That would be awful. Yeah, that'd be awful. Uh, Then I'll regret making it, you know? There we go. I don't think you will, to be quiet. No. Dennis, Dennis, we want to thank you very much for coming. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm David Campbell. And we have another uh, set of filmmakers who have their film in the uh, Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your names and the film that you have in the festival. Hi, my name is Simone McIntyre. I am the producer of The Overcoat. My name is Justin Juice Black, and I'm the director of The Overcoat. Excellent. Welcome, uh, Simone and Justin, to the show Shoot the Breeze. Uh, let's, let's start with, let's go ladies first. Uh, Simone, uh, please tell us, what is The Overcoat about? So The Overcoat is a short film based on an old Ukrainian short story called The Overcoat, which was originally written in 1842 uh, by Nikolai Gogol. And it's a story about a man who's leaving a dreary and dank existence and until he gets a new overcoat which transforms his life and in in true uh, russian story style the the um transformation is unlit is um short-lived so to speak Uh, enough emphasis cannot be placed on how much uh, a coat something as simple as a coat can transform your life um I recently acquired a sheepskin coat. I say acquired, I bought it. It sounds like I picked it off the street. Um, <laughs> and I really like that, like the jacket. I put it on, it fit me perfectly. You know, you get that nice little coat, it fits you perfectly. Just my self-esteem, my confidence just boosted, just brought me right to the top, right far than it's been. Uh, and I walked down the stairs and I just showed it off to my wife and my wife asked me, what the hell is that you're wearing? And uh Yank me all the way back down. So uh, <laughs> I want to ask, uh, Justin, I want to jump to you. What yeah. appealed to you about this particular project that made you want to work on it? Um, I mean, there was quite a few things, to be honest. Um, I think one of them was, it's a, it's a good story anyway. Uh, I like the story. I first learned the story um, when I was younger, in high school, in English class, uh, in literature. Um, so the opportunity to get to bring that to life was was one I didn't want to turn down, you know. Um, also, I thought it was a good. It, it was also something that I felt that us as black filmmakers wasn't expected of us. Do you know what I mean? And I think I always like to push boundaries in whatever that I'm, I'm involved in. Um, and I feel that this was a good way to 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 do that. Do you know what I mean? To to break through of what what is expected of us. Um, and it's just a really good story to tell. And I thought I can put a, a unique twist on it. And hopefully that's what we, what we was able to do. That's a very good point. And the fact that you mentioned uh, uh, black filmmakers as well, uh, one of the uh, 
the previous episodes that we've done was an, uh, an filmmaker talking about underrepresentation in the film industry and yeah. the fact that we like to champion that's what we pretty much we love to do on shoot the breeze is yeah. champion uh, underrepresented uh, underrepresented communities especially in films now one yeah. aspect that you've just brought this up about this being something that is different from what a black filmmaker would be expected to create do you mind elaborating a little bit more maybe talking about what sort of uh, what's that expectation uh, and what could actually yeah. be done to shatter that particular barrier of expectation and uh, and stereotyping yeah I've, okay so i grew up in in a part of london in north part of northwest london uh, called harlesden stonebridge and you know it's, it doesn't have the best reputation you know and growing up you know, I experienced a lot of things, saw a lot of things, really bad things. Do you know what I mean? Um, from whether it could be people getting stabbed, shot, um, lots of, just lots of horrible things. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of what uh, I feel is expected of us as black filmmakers is meant to be people expected to be representative of that. Whereas for me, I like to do stuff that takes, personally, it takes me to a different place. Do you know what I mean? That, that, that takes myself and the audience to some, somewhere else. Um, because, I don't know, I, I, feel, I feel if we're going to, I mean, first of all, I have to say that those stories are important. So the stories of our experiences growing up in those environments are very important. Um, but at the same time, I feel that real growth for us as filmmakers is to be able to show a, a wider worldview. So that could be the wider black experience as opposed to those things that we, that are so often associated and also that are so often fetishized by people that are, are non-black as well. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I feel that, and that, so, so, it's, so I have to say this, it's very key that I'm not putting down anyone that makes that, that kind of material that, or that kind of, those kind of films or, or tells those kind of stories. Because again, those stories need to be told, but for me personally, I always want to do something that takes us somewhere different. Do you know what I mean? And not only that, for me personally, to tell those stories would be almost an easier way out. And I like to push myself. So as much as I like to push boundaries in the, in, in the, in the, in, in the art that I create and that, and that we jointly create, I also like to push myself. So whereas, for example, I might be able to go and, and get a few friends that I've known for many years or whatever, people within my social circle and and easily, so air quotes, obviously, but, but so-called easily create something like that, that tells those kind of stories. Whereas if I'm going to create something that's, that's based on a story from 1842 by an author from the Ukraine called Nikolai Gogol, and that's more of like an art house type of film, that, that, forces, that forces me to step out of my comfort zone. That forces me to engage something that I wouldn't engage if I was making that art, the other kind of art. Do you know what I mean? So again, to bring it all back, I feel that those stories are important to tell about that aspect of the black experience um, in that environment that I've come from. But also I, also, I also believe that growth for us going forward is important that we are also able to be told, so to be able to tell other stories as well, because otherwise it becomes, it's almost a form of, uh, I want to feel the right word, it's almost like a form of artistic segregation, where it's like, okay, you're black, I'm going to hire him to shoot this film to, that's set in the inner city London estate, okay? But I also wanted to shoot this rom-com set in, I don't know, Sweden. I don't know, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, for, for example, 
but they're like, no, 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 you, you, you could shoot, you, you could shoot this, 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 this amazing story we've got where, you know, the guy sells drugs and he gets killed. So I don't want to particularly do that, you know? And like I said, those stories need to be told because that's the reality that so many of us face. But I feel if we're going to grow and, and break barriers as filmmakers, that it's important that we do other things as well. Hence projects like the Overcoat. You're preaching to the choir here. What are my main, uh, criticisms of films that come out of the UK industry for one is not and not just talking about black films but that actually is quite representative of that is a microcosm of that major problem where British movies from my perspective always seem to be grounded in realism and gritty and and realistic whereas if you want to get something that is fantastical and and uh, ethereal and out of this world you go to America you go to France and uh, you you know Paris etc to get that sort of uh, that sort of uh, gr um, you know fantasy uh, Simone I want to ask you uh, as Justin and I are saying exactly the same thing what are your thoughts about other filmmakers within Britain pushing that particular boundary, not just black filmmakers, but the UK industry as a whole. What are your, your opinions on that? Um, pushing the boundaries, re-representation. Uh, either, either representation or even just stepping, not even, not necessarily representation, but stepping out of that expectation of, as, as Justin pointed out, how, you know, you would, People, a producer would look at him as a as a as a person of color or a black uh, director and say, "Right, I'm going to get this project. You'd be perfect for this urban drama yeah. about the stabbings." Uh, what else could we do in the, what else can what what can the film industry do in the UK to be able to step beyond that expectation of pigeonholing directors such as Justin and and a producer, a filmmakers such as yourself? It, would, it sounds really simple, but like lose the expectations. Um, so, for example, um, a, a, a Caucasian filmmaker who wanted to make something that was maybe, say, not his experience, uh, they would usually be met with um, less questions or less steering towards funds available for that type of film. That do you know what I mean? Whereas uh, it, it almost feels like there's a parallel where one group of people might have the world as their oyster re-expectation or what they can can be put into and access to whereas another group of people are ex expected to stay within certain boundaries and it's the same thing if you are a female filmmaker um you're expected to stay in certain genre um and deal with maybe certain issues and, uh, you know sometimes you don't want to do that that's not necessarily what you want to make. That's not the story you want to tell. And I just notice that there, there is no, no expectation of where you might fit if you are a, uh, I don't know, Caucasian male, young male, perhaps, perhaps the, the world, the sky's the limit. And, um, you know, I, that's, that's something that's not just uh, our industry. That's kind of with everything. And it most probably starts with our um, education system and how we, we uh, view stereotypes and how we are taught about roles, etc. And, you know, um, for example, as myself, um, very rarely as, a, as, an, as an actor, before I started to produce, would I see a female director or female crew 
I think maybe twice I've seen a female DP or something I've shot. Um, and so as a producer, I'm always very aware of trying to address, uh, address giving opportunities to people who are still at a level with the, the skill set, but don't have access to the same opportunity necessarily because it's not expected of them. That makes sense. No, that makes that makes perfect. It makes perfect sense. Uh, you're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm David Campbell. Um, just a question to both of you. I mean, you've made this film now. Um, where do you see things going after this? I mean, are you going to be looking to make more fantasticals or um, are you looking to go abroad? What, what, are, you, what are you looking for next? Um, I like fantasy films and sci-fi, so I, um, I have something brewing with this a sci-fi, uh, project with, with Justin, actually, and, um, do tend to have blue sky thinking, so if it sounds impossible and way above my expected budget level, that's the, that's the thing I want to try and move forward with, because, um, I just think, who am I to limit myself? So if I really um, want to see a particular story, I, I'm beginning to understand that I need to get in there and make it myself sometimes, you know? And there are ways and means that we can do it, even if you're just building a package, you know, to, to convince people to invest, etc. No, you're, you're basically singing off my hymn sheet because uh, I... <laughs> Marisa Dave would pretty much tell you that's literally what I've, I don't, I've done. I started off as an actor and I was like, well, I can't wait for people to give me work. So I'm going to start writing my own stuff. And then 10, 15, 20 years later, I, I've created myself as actor, writer, director. And now I'm hosting a radio TV, radio show about films. So uh, absolutely, I, we're happy to champion you, both of you as well, to come back when you have that fantasy, when you're working that fantasy project. We definitely want you to come back on this show That's so we can talk more about it. Um, now, we, we, if at the moment, The Overcoat is at the Paris International Film Festival. How did you get to hear about the festival? Um, and sort of what are your thoughts about the Paris International Film Festival? Um, so I heard about the festival through, where did I hear about it? I did hear about it on social media. And then I coincidentally bumped into, well, it was online to Jenna Suhu. Oh, Jenna. <laughs> yeah, through a women and, and film and television event. And she, she briefly mentioned her festival. But you see, after that event, that we were talking about other things, not the festival. Then I was on her social media and then I saw how the, the, the social media for the festival was just fantastic. Oh my gosh, I want to be part of this. And then when I read what the festival ethos was about, I was like, wow, this is very cool. So, and I, actually, I don't think I've seen a festival like that because we had to answer some specific questions about how we made the film and... And that was really interesting. So that's basically how so I told Justin I'm submitting to this. <laughs> and Justin, did you get to, when you found out about the Paris International Film Festival, um, what, what were your thoughts and what were your thoughts about getting this particular project in there and how far did you see it going? I, I was very happy, very, very happy about it. It's, it's funny, actually, we was due to shoot in Paris, we was doing a co-production for a project that we had literally just before lockdown 1.0 and it was we had everything booked was ready to go out there i think the tickets and, and all the accommodation everything was booked on 
uh, I can't remember what day it was. And then literally two days later, Paris went into full lockdown. And then it, as with everybody else in the industry, just paused everything. So I think it's, kind, it's quite, um, I, 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 I like the energy of the fact that, that the Paris International Film Festival has said, okay, we like what you guys have got here. Do you know what I mean? And they've, they've taken us on, on, on board and, do, and, just, and have chosen Overcut as an official selection. You know, it's, um, I, can't, I can't remember the word. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, I, I like it. I like it. I like the fact that it happened. <laughs> No, that's good. I mean, Jenna Suru, she's, uh, I, I keep singing her praises so much so that, you know, people might think I might have a crush on her, which I think I do because she's amazing in the work that she does. Uh, and I think you, you, I think Overcoat will do tremendously well at the Paris International Film Festival for people wanting to know more about the project, more about and follow yourselves, such as myself. I'd love to follow you, not literally, but on Twitter and social media. Um, how can we get to follow you? Well, there's the official uh, Overcoat uh, Instagram page. It's the Overcoat movie. Is that right? Yeah. yeah the Overcoat movie. There you also find a link to the XL Films page, that's our production company's page, um, where you can see uh, all, you can find out all the full information about the film. Um, it's it's uh, all, all of its accolades, the select, its official selections and its nominations, etc. Also the full cast and credits list as well. Um, myself, I'm on Instagram at Juice Black. That's one word, Juice Black. Similarly on Twitter, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at Juice Black as well. Um, and those are the, the best ways to to interact with, with with myself and the film. And the film, the Overcoat is also on Facebook as well. The Overcoat movie is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the overcoat. Yeah, so it's on it's on Facebook as well. But for me, um, at Juice Black on both Instagram and Twitter are the best ways to get hold of me. Excellent, Justin. We're following you right now on Twitter. So, uh, uh, sorry, uh, David. Just before I cut you off, uh, uh, sorry, I cut you off, David. Yeah, I was just going to ask Simone if um, she's got any. Yeah. Um, so I am the Simone McIntyre on Instagram, and just Simone McIntyre on Twitter. Very straightforward. And literally in seconds, uh, Shoot the Breeze will be following you as well. And uh, we'll post awesome. your, your details on the show notes when, we're, when we let this episode go out. Um, we want to thank you very much, uh, Simone and Justin, for talking to us about your short film, The Overcoat, which is playing at the Paris International Film Festival. W honestly, we definitely want you guys to come back onto our show, talk more about oh, your blue sky painting. And uh, we can all, it went, hopefully when uh, COVID and lockdown lift, is lifted and we're all back in the studio together, we can go for a drink and talk more about other type of fantastical films that we can make in the British industry. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and we have a filmmaker whose, uh, whose project is in the Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your name and the name of your project. Anthony Meindl, and bonjour, and uh, the name of the, our film is called Some of Us, S-U-M, like the sum of all parts. Like the sum of all parts. Now, I do have questions, I do have questions about the title, but I'll come to that in a second. Can you tell sure. us, what, what is Some of Us about? Uh, you know, it's interesting because it's kind of like a, a really interesting experimental hybrid. It's like, it feels at times like a documentary, but then it's also a, a fictional narrative. And it's about 11 interlocking stories of interconnectedness of people who seem to not to be strangers in a way. And as life's incidents happen, uh, they discover that we're all more connected than we realize personally and 
sometimes literally and sometimes figuratively in ways that we can't always track. Um, and it's following the lives of actors um, and the process of what it means to be an artist. So it's, it, it's an interesting uh, experiment, really. So why did you, I mean, it, just as you were trying to describe it, um, why did you drop off the the at the beginning of the title? Because obviously it, it, it kind of rolls off the tongue of saying the some of us. Why did you go with some of us? Well, I think maybe the word the, maybe to me connotes, is a sort of connotation of singular and I think some equals all the parts equal the whole and a lot of um, so it's not just one but it's all of us and I think it also kind of speaks to not just during these COVID times where we keep using that catchphrase we're all in this together which we are but also the the movie really explores how we're connected environmentally so it deals with climate change it deals with mental illness it deals with um, you know sort of somebody you thought was one way you discover is somebody else. And so I think a lot of times these threads are all woven together and it takes a life sometimes to then realize how, how much not only we're connected to people in ways that we never thought we realized, but also, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought there, but, but that, that we're also interconnected in ways that we often take for granted or don't even realize. And as you say, interconnected, uh, are the stories sort of do the stories weave in together some sort of like uh, Robert Altman, uh, where, you know, different characters all have uh, tangential connections to each other, but they're telling different stories. Yes, that's totally it. I mean, uh, I think the viewers are surprised at how some of the stories are interwoven and where one person is connected in a way that you can you you don't see it coming. And yes, I never thought about shortcuts or uh, that's a Robert Altman film for those of you who don't know, but but yes, for sure. When I when I think of uh, sort of stories about different characters spread around, I do think shortcuts. I think uh, is it Magnolia? Um, uh, uh, Magnolia, uh, exactly. Where it's sort of different characters all separated, but they're all. I, I, I don't want to bring this this one crash is one that I don't tend to like That's to bring right. up yep. but it's exactly the same sort of structure and framework where you have different characters that all seem completely separated until they cross parts Amoris Peros is the better one I like to bring in because uh -huh. it's where wow, you know your movies Marcus yes i do <laughs> so it's a it's the reason i do this uh, but okay. yeah so and I, I, I love ideas like that i love stories like that because when you're watching it it's sort of it, it for me personally it builds that anticipation of when they're going to connect because you want to find out how is this person connected to that person and then that build as you said you involve different sort of themes in it you talked about global warming you talked about environmentalism etc what inspired you to do this project well, I think, you know, one of the movies that pops in my mind, if you're a cinephile, maybe you, maybe I'm going to give you a movie here you've never heard about, but you should see it. It's called Wild Tales. Wild Tales. Ooh. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Marcus, you have to see this movie. It is so brilliant. It's a Spanish movie that came out uh, maybe four years ago. And I maybe unconsciously that inspired me. Uh, we had a screening of this movie, of my movie, Some of Us in New York before COVID and uh, some people in the audience were like, oh my God, this is so much like Wild Tales. It's, it's Wild Tales, I think, is like six interconnected stories or five. They're, they're longer form stories. Mine are like 
three or four minutes each mostly, but, but I really love that uh, comparison because that to me was a beautiful, brilliant movie. But I also am interested in sort of the, like we know how our lives intersect sometimes um, in the physical, like I see you right now on my life is intersecting with you because we're having these moments in time, right? But I'm also interested in the comings and goings. I'm interested in time. I'm interested in the bending of time. Like had we made a different choice at a different point in our lives, we might not have ended up where we are now. And you can't know any of that prior to the experience of something. We'll never know that either, right? Like I've been a big meditator for many years and sometimes I'm asked, well, you know, how has your life changed because you're meditating and my life has changed in really uh, tangible, real ways, but it's hard for me to even compare what it could have been had I not had a meditation practice because I'm not living that life. But, but this movie does kind of explore not an alternate reality, not necessarily like a parallel storyline of where your character could have gone had you not made choice A, but I feel like that's kind of, interwoven metaphorically in the in the storytelling and at the end it does kind of culminate in some bigger existential ways of thinking about that connection the ephemeralness of our time here on this planet and um that i don't want to give too much away but it really contextualizes that we're all here on this chunk chunk of earth spinning in the middle of outer space hanging on together you know no absolutely as uh, and again my brain works in film references so you as you're talking about being able to examine how your life has shifted that kind of reminded me of sliding doors the Gwyneth oh Paltrow i love sliding film. doors yeah and this typical example of just one tiny little incident that occurs which is she misses a tube you know the, the tube in in london and Again, with that question that you get asked, how has meditation changed your life? Well, you personally don't know that. Um, you, it could be something massive or it could be the fact that because you've meditated, it meant that you didn't take time out to go and see that your lover is now hooking up with someone else and then that changes your life completely. Um, but right. I, do, I do understand exactly what you mean with regards to the fact that tiny little things like that do change and it'll be great. It, it would be fantastic to be able to see that sort of correlation between uh, this action, this small, tiny action, and how massive the consequence could be. Tying it into, I haven't seen your project, but tying it to something like climate change, for example, you could use that as, or that analogy could be used where somebody throws a, a you know, a piece of rubbish that isn't properly recycled and how that progresses and does something that causes a major catastrophe in 15 years, that whole butterfly effect, uh, for example. That's right. That's um, I think we, if I could just jump in too, Marcus, yeah, please, I, please. Think, I think we underestimate how coiled everything is and connected together. And I think, you know, the climate collapse is a big issue that I'm a big activist about and very vocal about. And I think we, we forget how so many things are connected to one thing that we don't realize is connected to something else is connected to the meta picture of it all. And, and so I'm really interested in, in those kind of themes that you, you know, 
you denigrate one thing and it really does have repercussions. Like you said, the, the butterfly effect, right? And, and using that, and in, in fact, I mean, it's it, we talking about climate change and the environment. Um, we, we're just coming, we're not coming out of it. We're still stuck in uh, the worldwide okay. pandemic in COVID. Yeah. Um, what sort of effect or uh, connection does your film have to what's happening in the outside world with COVID? Well, I shot it before COVID, so, you know, I don't have a reference to COVID, but I do think watching it now, when we shot it, and now watching the movie, because it's been over a year, it's been a little bit longer than that by the time we've finished post-production, like a lot of these issues that I talk about seem to be even more in our consciousness now and more... Um, important, they've always been important. I don't know what the word would be, impactful and profound now. And I, I feel like uh, it's very interesting to see time, you know, years pass, but we're still looking through the lens of stuff that we still need to address or we or haven't been properly explored or haven't been brought to the light in a way that we should be looking at, whether it's Black Lives Matter and what's happening here in America or you know any other kind of social issue that we kind of keep thinking, oh, we're gonna address it at some later point. But I think these things are all you know, log jammed up against each other. And it's sort of this great moment in time of having to reconcile. It's like a great reckoning, I think. It's just like anything. Can we watch anything anymore with, without looking at through the lens of climate collapse, through Black Lives Matter, through, if you're, if you're any way conscious and compassionate and empathetic, you are gonna look at art, even art that was made 10 years ago, I think through a different lens as we should. No, you're absolutely right. And that was the point I was, I, I wanted to say, I was going to do the little sound bit that we normally do, shoot the breeze on Resonance 104.4 oh. FM uh, and remind the audience of your name and the name of the, the project that you're working on, which is Anthony, how do you pronounce your last name? Mendel? Mindel. Mindel. Uh, Anthony Mindel and some of us, uh, which is currently at the Paris International Film Festival. And I agree with you totally. There is, uh, it's sort of our lives are impacted by, by various things, uh, you know, and the pandemic has touched absolutely everyone that is connected to anybody in the world. We've been touched, no matter how it is, in very, in very little terms to grave terms. And as such, it now colors our perspective on anything that we see. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be something as trivial as the food you eat to the way you order your clothes, to sending your kids to school, to watching films. And, and because we talk about films and television quite a lot, it's, you can tell a film that has been made, a film, a TV show that has been made post 2020, because all the characters or all the actors, it's very awkward whenever they're very close to each other, right? And you get to mm. see people like a group of people sitting in a room and they're all spaced out. And there's that tiny little bit of your brain that always goes, they're spaced out because they're social distancing while they're shooting the film. Obviously in your own homes, you're very close to your family. You're sitting next to each other, you're touching each other and so on and so forth. But when you're watching a real family, well, a real family on TV, and they're not doing that, that thought always goes into your mind. So I completely understand what you mean. 
uh, everything is now colored by what we've gone through. Um, and you mentioned both Black Lives Matter and the COVID experience. I wanna jump into the fact that you're now in Paris International Film Festival. Is this the first time people are getting to see your film or have, is this sort of in the middle of the festival journey as you were, as you will? I mean, it's, it's in the middle of the festival journey and uh, we actually were finishing up all of our deliverables, which is just a fancy term of getting uh, the movie ready to go uh, to, we have a distribution, so it's going to be coming out very, I think, in April. Um, so that's exciting. We got picked up, and uh, hopefully, people will be able to watch it all over the world if they're not going to tune in to the Paris uh, International Film Fest. And yes, it's been on the festival circuit. And uh, so, yeah, it's just, it's always exciting to try to get, I think, movies of, you know, messages that I think we need to contemplate. I think social, you know, socially conscious filmmaking is really important, at least for me, like to tell stories about where we are and where we go from here is really important to think about. And, and it doesn't mean in a heavy handed way. I think the movie is really quite funny, even though we're tackling some really intense issues kind of subtly, but, but also really funny and very human and relatable. And, and, and also, like I said, it's meta because it's, it is about a group of actors exploring the actor's process whilst telling stories. So it's, 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 at, it's being explored at many different levels. I, I can't wait to watch the movie and I'd really love to talk to you about it a little bit more. Uh, for people who want to follow the progress of the movie, follow your career, follow the actors in the film, uh, what's the best way to follow this film on social media, oh, et cetera? Awesome. Yeah, I mean, Marcus, I, so I teach actors by trade. That's what I do. And I have acting studios all over the world, including London. Are you in London? That's where you're based, right? So uh, the, the name of our studios is Anthony Mindel's Actor Workshop. And each studio location has an, uh, we call it AMAW for short, has uh, a handle on Instagram. Also, I'm at Anthony Mindel on Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter, but you know what? Like, like Pamela Anderson just announced, she's gotten off of every single social media platform. I okay. Yes, yesterday she's like, "Bye." She's like, "I've wasted so much of my life on here. I'm not going to do it anymore. I want to spend time with nature and books and loved ones." She's like, "Bye, bye, bye." So she's that's it. So I'm not quite there yet but i really do not use twitter and you know what here's the thing about fomo if i can just say because i think a lot of people feel like they have to be on everything because they're missing out it's such a construct of our neurotic mind uh, me not being i mean i have a profile on twitter but i almost never check it so i'm on instagram because i like pictures and i like using it to help spread inspiring messages and stories artistically so yeah, or you could just go to our website, www.anthonymindle.com and find out more about us. Fantastic. I'm now following you on Instagram. So we'll, okay. See. Okay. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Anthony, thank you very much for joining me uh, on Shoot the Breeze. And we wish you all the best. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. I'm producer Dave. And those were the final interviews that we did with filmmakers who have their films and their projects in the Paris International Film Festival, which is ending the 14th of February, which is when this podcast episode is going out. So if you're listening to this after the 14th of February, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to see it at the festival because the festival has ended. However, just follow these filmmakers because some of these names you're going to be hearing in, in a few years' time 
amongst the greats. You'll hear them with big awards and big uh, you know, accolades following them because of the amount of work they've done, because of the type of work they've done. I had the pleasure of uh, the honor of watching a number of these films and my goodness, they were just terrific. Um, so the so go check them out, follow the filmmakers on Twitter, on social media, and just pay attention to these people because they are just going to be doing wonderful things in the future. Yeah, if you couldn't see them at the uh, film festival, I'm certain they're going to be popping up all over the place anyway. So just take a note of the name of the film, put it into um, your search engine, and you'll probably find where you can actually watch it. Absolutely. And maybe and uh, maybe next week when we'll most likely have Jenna Suru on to talk about who won at the festival, you'll get to find out the filmmakers that picked up accolades at the Paris International Film Festival. And we can talk a little bit more uh, about those projects and basically just say who won. So you'll get to see who won, who didn't, who should have and so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, let, I think we've been gabbing on for too long. Uh, you know, you you'll have you need to go and watch the films on uh, the on the Paris International Film Festival site uh, straight away, rather than listening to us talk about them. So we're going to sign off now by saying uh, thank you very much for having listened to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. I'm still David Campbell. Saying thank you very much for listening. And speak to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.